0: Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is SeamlessMD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Malik Perohit. Dr. Perohit is a physician leader, digital health executive, and clinical informaticist with more than 15 years of experience leading large healthcare IT initiatives with tangible results by leveraging healthcare IT, product development, and digital strategies. He's currently with Lehigh Valley Health Network, where he serves as the Chief Health Information Officer. Dr. Purohit, Malik, welcome to the show. Thank you, thanks for having me. It was an honor to be here. Well, it's absolutely amazing having you on the show today. You've had one of the most diverse and unique careers I've ever seen in healthcare, from internal medicine and integrative medicine with a focus on brain injury research to informatics and leadership. And so i'm really curious to start the conversation what drove your interest into healthcare in the first place
1: oh thanks Uh, great question so ever since i was a kid actually my first option was to be a pitcher for the new york mets but Uh, that that ended uh, quite early uh (laughs) and so then my backup was to be healthcare i don't know what prompted me wanting to be a physician as long as i can remember i wanted to be a physician ever since I was in elementary school. And just something about it really appealed to me being involved in the care of somebody else. That all seemed like something really cool way to live life, right? To care for somebody else and really give what you can to make that person's life better. That always appealed to me. I don't have a good reason as to why, but sometimes we just, you know, are attracted to something and that's what it is. What I'll say is that it became more formal for me when I was in high school. And, you know, I'd always talk to my parents about wanting to be in medicine and so when i got my license uh, at age 16 then my grandparents were close to us so uh, my mom's like well you want to be a doctor your grandparents got to go to the doctor you get a license and go <laughs> <laughs> and so i ended up being involved in my particular grandfather's care for obvious reasons in terms of a lot of his appointments every day one of the reasons because i could translate and they spoke bujrati and so bujrati in english oh. and so i was the translator in helper and chauffeur and Uber driver all in one. And when you're 16 and, and you have to do that, you know, your initial thought, oh, why I'd rather be my friends, do this, that, right. But through that experience, I probably I might jump up a little bit because uh, it's a little bit emotional, but I really became, um, became a lot closer to my grandparents and then, uh, my granddad, especially. He told me a lot of stories that as we're, we're doing the rides together. And I learned a lot from him and. I didn't appreciate post-bush. the moments were, months later, as we went to the appointments, I learned what he was truly really struggling, what it meant to have, you know, medicine, like we talked about getting older and having LR prostate and, and BPH and, you know, in medicine what's up, minor condition, this, is this, 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 but, you know, talking to him, being the car and understanding his experience with it, I was like, man, this is actually pretty bothersome, <laughs> Like it's not a, you know, we, we think it's a minor thing in healthcare, but minor from a healthcare perspective versus minor to the patients are two different things. And so I gained a much better appreciation for colleagues in minor in healthcare. And the other part was, as I was with him and I experienced seeing different doctors and nursing and et cetera, we were lucky we had a wonderful experience with, with the people that were helping us with nursing care, with physician care, et cetera. The thing that stood out though was the limitations of the system itself in terms of the quality of care that you could receive and all of the people are doing their best we just noticed and this is in the early 90s and, and you don't really have a patient portal you don't have uh, you have to call for lab you call for results of x-rays etc and how difficult it was to uh, be on the phone and call get results uh, go back and travel and access and, and he was also elderly at a certain age walking became difficult for him and so you realize how the system of care could be a huge barrier for someone getting access to care and some of that, unfortunately, is still true today, two decades later, three decades later, in some of those access issues. But to me, that made a huge question because I wanted to not only be a physician, but also I wanted to help clean up that system of care and how to make it better for the patient so that anybody else is having to go through that the same level of difficulty to get, get care.
2: Wonderful. And, and Malik, be uh, not so surprising then that you've had a history of... You know, taking initiative and being fairly entrepreneurial and trying to bring change to the system and, and improve practice. One of the things that, that you're known for is establishing the, the inaugural concussion program at Mass General. What was the origin story behind that?
1: Well, when I started fellowship, it was part of the Harvard healthcare system. And I was a research fellow for brain injury. One of my mentors, I was lucky to have several really good ones. One of them is someone named Ross Fons was the chair of Human Art Department to Physical Medicine and Rehab, which is my core specialty, and I still so specialized in brain injury. And in the first few months, one day he asked me, hey, do you want to help out with the confession program? And I think, as you know, when you're low on the totem pole and the chair of the department is asking you, do you want to help? There's really one answer, one right answer <laughs> for the question. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I, as much as I joke about it, I'm very grateful for him involving me in that process, because in that executive meeting, our planning committee, it was some of those phenomenal physicians and and others in that room, from pediatric chair and head of the pediatric program to neurosurgery, to neurology to others. And I got to see some of the top most leaders in healthcare on a regular basis for this meeting, discussing how we're going to plan this out. And I learned so much through that process. And I'm eternally grateful because it already launched a lot of different things for me. And then through that process, as you know, the other part of this is, you know, things typically roll down, go not the other way. And so I ended up being a lot of the frontline work for this in terms of thinking about the clinic and the practice and are we going to have patient flow? Are we going to hire people? Are we going to educate them? Are we going to create templates and that kind of stuff? At first, I I showed up the meeting and one rule I learned is to show up and shut up in the first few weeks, right? Be seen, but not heard. And so I listened a lot. And then eventually there was a moment for me to interject an idea and I did, and then it worked and people liked it and, well, and it gave me more opening opportunity to speak. And eventually we got to the point and we started talking about things like marketing and finance and business planning. And so I was very involved in a lot of those things. And it really helped me understand the business side of medicine, the consumer engagement side, the patient experience side, the quality metrics, in addition to just the clinical care rates. And it really felt like running a startup company in a parent organization as a process through all of that. And so it was a great experience. I'm eternal grateful to uh, Dr. of Fawn, uh for inviting me to be part of that. Obviously there's a lot of hard work you have to do as a part of it, but that just goes part and parcel. You have to have a mentor that sponsors you, and then you have to make your own effort within that. And I was lucky to have that mentorship in that sense to, to be able to start it. And I'm also grateful to another mentor, Russ Phillips, who was the Chief of the Division of Medicine at Beth Israel at the time. And he also allowed the fellowship that I had was actually a joint combination between Beth Israel and Mass General Spaulding, putting it all together. And so I'm really grateful to both of them for allowing that fellowship to happen and then allowing this opportunity to happen. So it was a fantastic experience and really appreciate everyone who
2: put in the effort to make it happen you brought up something really interesting the idea that as a physician you had the opportunity to expand the scope of your responsibilities and knowledge beyond clinical to the business of medicine quality consumer experience and all that and it feels like you know you're not alone that it feels like a lot of physicians have to develop those those skills and, and knowledge pieces now but it also feels like it's really hard to somehow bring all that into clinical training on top of all the, the clinical things you have to learn do you feel like going forward there's there is or should be room for the business of medicine and all those other things in clinical training or do you feel like that's just something that you just have to now learn when you get into practice
1: yeah i think that's a great question i think the clinical aspect is still very heavy right to be proficient as a physician requires a lot of dedication time and effort and it's not just 80 hours a week in hospital but reading understanding thinking about your patients all the stuff that goes into being proficient at your profession right whether you're a musician, whether you're a singer, whether you're an athlete, you know, the level it takes to go from being average or good to being great. And, and that distance is pretty huge uh, in terms of effort and time. And so to, to do that, if the clinician is hard, you have to spend the time. The pressure of today is also, how do you do that? And also learn all the other stuff, because you really can't separate the business of medicine from the quality of care in today's world. Not because it's all about money, but understanding cost of care is important because if you have a choice of, let's say two medications in front of you and they're equally efficacious, then you should know the business medicine and how to reduce costs and take the one that's less costly to the patient and to the health system because that is important. So it's not that money drives things. Money does drive things in many ways, but knowing how to most efficiently use your resources to drive change is a business principle, is a clinical principle, is a quality principle. And so all of those things come together. And if you learn just one side of it, you won't be as successful as if you learn all of those things. That's a huge pressure because it's hard to learn everything. And if you imagine somebody who went to med school and then is in residency and in a fellowship, you've gone through, you know, a decade plus, a decade and a half of this that's and now you're in your mid, early to mid-30s, and you also have the, you know, if you want a family, you want to spend time with the kids. So there's all of those pressures that add into this. And I think it's it's a really different world right now. Uh, and I'm grateful because I had a really good family support, wife and two kids and others and parents and others that really supported that during that allowed me to get to the level I was at. But if not for a good family support, it's hard to get there. And today in the world, it's a blessing to have that because it's not quite easy. And that's one of the reasons we have some of the burnout issues we have, because nobody who's a physician wants to be average, right? None of us, you know, none of us got into medical school because you are happy being average. But that drive to be great, it competes with the
0: time demands of other things that are there. That makes sense. So Malik, when you finished this fellowship, you could have gone in so many different directions at that point. You'd learned the business of medicine, you're a physician, Eventually made your way into informatics. So I'm really curious what kind of drove you there at that point. it was there a defining moment for you or how did that happen? Yeah, good question. So I'll be honest, I, I never knew
1: that there's the role of the CHIO or CMIO. But frankly, it didn't really exist when I was in medical school. And I never imagined myself when I was in school doing anything except seeing patients. That's what everybody at the history did. And that you know, that's what I knew. And so I, I did the professional thing, all that where Everything's been going well, I was a researcher. And I also got a second degree there, MPH, to learn bioinformatics, data analytics, a lot of other stuff that came with it, study design, all that. Things that I didn't expect to be helpful later in life, but have been immensely helpful, uh, in later life. And so I did that and now I'm still at heart a researcher because I enjoy asking questions, learning, being curious, and then uh, learning more. And after my time at Mass General in Spaulding, I was recruited to be in the Department of Defense to help expand a growing program for brain injury and PTSD, and there's a lot of great people already there. I came into the system. My role is as chief of research and chief medical officer at a relatively young age, and one of the things we did was we built a building, expanded the program, but that program grew from several thousand visits a year to 22 thousand visits a year by my left and became one of the largest by volume, programs in the country for brain injury. And as we're doing this, the researcher means I want data on the patients because I'd love to use that data to understand, you know, what's going on. We didn't really have a good understanding. We still don't in many ways of brain injury and why it happens, who gets it. Why do some people have more symptoms than others? Why do some people take longer to recover? Where are some of the risk factors? And we don't have a great understanding of that because we don't have large epidemiological studies. Cardiology, for example, took out because of the premium study that enrolled people out of really gained a huge understanding, of, uh, cardiology and, and, and the risk factors and that kind and of stuff. And really the term risk factor came from that premium study. It didn't exist before. And so I wanted to do the same for brain injury and, and no platform database existed to get into that. And so I went down the path of how do we create a platform and analytics and that kind of stuff to uh, collect data on patients, understand them, see them in a longitudinal fashion. And then see what happens if you treat hundred patients with this or hundred patients with this, who gets better faster? Uh, all that kind of stuff. The concept of predictive analytics, the concepts of AI generation for that data set. And it's important for many reasons. And from a patient care standpoint, the department of defense and planning strategy, are we going to have, are we going to be able to count on this person to be on the front line or not in six months or 12 months? Those are really dramatic issues because we talk about sports and like, if you have a quarterback with a concussion, or anything we will play next to me and sports is is important but i think without argument it's probably a lot more important for the people who are defending the country to know whether they're going to have the people to defend the country or not right and those kind of things we couldn't predict and so those are the kind of things that we want to help get there and so we started going on the path for an analytics platform i learned a lot about it through that process that i didn't expect to know you know like setting up a wi-fi network i learned all the nuances of what a Wi-Fi network is, how to set it up, why it matters, why do you want A, B, C, or G, and all, that, like, all the different things that go into it. Where do you want routers? Where do you want the, the points? know, where do you want the wiring? And I learned because nobody else was around to get into it. When you raise your hand and you have a, an idea, sometimes you're going to have to execute it. And so that's okay. what happened. And so I learned a lot of stuff about that because we need Wi-Fi to then have people have iPads and other things to then be able to fill out their questionnaires and all that stuff. So then, you know, working with the government IT team to build some of the platform and, and the initiatives and the development of that. Along with that came the workflow, right? How do you patient uh, command? How do they sit down with the questionnaire? How do they know when to go? What questions to answer? That kind of stuff. And they're really working with a full team of people uh, at Fort Belvoir to develop these processes and, and, and the outcomes of data collection. So then we can understand the pathology better, et cetera. And so it was a whole list of things, and that effectively was a lot of what a uh, for Madison or CMIO would do, is create the system of workflow, process, data, analytics, and all that kind of stuff. And as much as I love research and being a primary researcher, I realized that the impact that I could have through a role like the CMIO role would be uh, much more impactful than, than the research I was doing. Not because it wasn't important, but the things I was looking at with integrated medicine. Was looking at the use of integrated medicine for brain injury and recovery, uh, and at that point, it became pretty established that meditation, yoga, those kind of things are really good for your health, and they also have been really good for the brain. And then some of the other stuff I was asking were more academic questions. I'm not going to tell people not to do yoga or not to do meditation. We've already established they're really good for the brain and really for good health in any way. So then at that point, I realized my research was good, but to really have impact, work on the system of care which really I thought going back to my high school days with my grandparents, that really is an opportunity to make change and and drive that through the next step. It's around that time that confidence factors happened and I was able to shift into a, a formal CMIO role uh, in Texas. And so it wasn't the process of, I wanted to be CMIO and I thought about it and I worked towards it. It was more, I was a researcher. I had a lot of curiosity. I wanted to solve questions and, and, and ask questions and, and get answers to them. I wanted to make impact on the system of care and the two came together and led to the CMIO role, but it was never the aspiration to be in the role as much as it was to functionally help healthcare get better.
2: I love this. I think, you know, to that point, if someone focused so much on, my goal was to become a CMIO or a CHIO. And once they got that opportunity, maybe they're not as motivated to make those improvements, But then because for you, you, you were motivated more by solving problems for the system. Now that you're, you know, the CHIO at Lehigh Valley, you're probably like, well, my mom just started really, I'm here to solve problems. And I'm curious, so when you started in the past year at Lehigh Valley as a CHIO, what's the first thing that you do? Like, how do you decide what your first priorities are? It's kind of like a, almost like a blank slate for you in some ways, or maybe not. I'm kind of curious how you thought about it when you started.
1: Yeah, great question. Going back to that the point you just made about the CTI role. So, the aspiration for me has always been how do I don't really make impact? In and the CTI role is always important because it gives you the platform to have decision making and influence and, and authority to make decisions, which all contribute to that. But the role itself is not the goal. The goal is to help health, healthcare. And when I was interviewing for LVT, and the thing that struck me that really uh, it still strikes me a lot today is that it's a very progressive organization. It wants to make changes, it wants to push the envelope, it's definitely not happy with the status quo, and it really wants to push ahead and be a leader in there from the CEO to the EVPs all the way down, including my uh, direct boss, my Rossi, is there a huge push to make there better, in all the ways that statement applies, and that was the really most attractive part of LVH for me in the coming in When I started. One of the things that I knew from some mentorship at UH from Peter Protobos, who's my boss at UH, was one of the things that we do in healthcare is we have a lot of waste. And how do we reduce that waste? So I knew of a product uh, from my prior days uh, that can help with that in decision support. The name of that company is Actiolumicare, And we'd had a lot of good success with them, and they've had success in many places in terms of reducing costs. And what they do is they look at the data for cost in real time, and compared to what a patient is currently using, and they give a nudge in real time to the clinician to say, hey, Dr. Jones, you've got patient on antibiotic A, based on the lab values, looks like antibiotic B could work just as well, and it's half the price, or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. And would you like to change? Well, it's awesome. If I let a real time to the clinician, that's awesome. That allowed me to make that decision. Up to that point, We've never had that data in real time, but exact costs were for my system at that moment, and not just the cost data, right? Because Epic does give you some semblance of cost data when you're ordering. But the difference here was instead of putting all of the step of population onto the clinician, the software actually does that and gives you the support. So for example, it will go through look at a culture result, identify what the patient's antibiotic needs are, identify the difference in cause evaluate whether the patient's allergy or not, then take all that information, give you a knowledge, a very concise form that takes all those different factors into consideration gives you a knowledge in real time to uh, give a suggestion. And then it's up to the clinician whether the suggestion makes sense or not. Uh, They might say, well, you know, I get it, but I really need antibiotics." That's fine. That's clinician expertise and they have to give that. But this at least automates some of the processes of searching for all the different bits, bits and pieces of data and currently we into one succinct node in one place that then the clinician can make a decision on. And it's really, a it cam the way I look at it is, a lot of these products should be like the GPS that we use when we drive, right? Most of us, and I think most of us know how to drive. Uh, if you ask my wife, she might disagree with me about, my knowledge is driving, but, <laughs> but we have a license or so capable of driving We might live in an area that we know the route and the direction we're going, and that's great, and so we might not need GPS, but the GPS offers real-time data that tells you where the traffic backups are, what the delays might be, if there's whatever it may be, right? And that gives you that real-time data as the signal support on whether you wanna follow that route or not. And you might still decide, I wanna go left instead of right, and that's up to you. That's your expertise as a driver and expertise in the area. But at least that decision support gives you a layer of data and knowledge that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And that's the way I look at these schools in healthcare right now is they should at the very least offer that level of support. On the non-clinical side like operations, a rep psych and those other places, I think you can really push the envelope a lot more with AI and automation and have them actually do the task and, and really eliminate the things that the human might do so that the human can do something at a higher level. Instead of doing manual tasks need entry or having the same thing over and over again, they can now do something else which requires human like right? thinking or processing and analysis, right? So now you can use the people on your on your team to do much better work and alleviate the boredom of menial work. Uh, and so there's a lot of places where I think the AI can really do a lot of full automation. On the puntable side, I'm still cautious because I haven't seen a tool that can only human in every situation. Now we've seen certainly AI and you go to the news about ChatGPT preferring better on tests and all that kind of stuff. Taking a test and seeing a patient are two different things. I mean, (laughs) hands down. And so there's certainly room for decision support, but I'd be careful in completely eliminating clinical care from humans in lieu of an automation or AI tool, just simply because we're not fully there yet for a lot of reasons. And I thought to say, we may not get there. I would love for some things to be automated, But I don't think today is that kind yet. We may see that soon. I I wouldn't doubt it if I saw that in my lifetime. But today, I don't think it exists.
2: One thing that we've heard today, but also we've heard from past things you've said or written is that you have a pretty, I think, healthy skepticism of AI, right? You obviously believe it's potential, but you also don't get on the hype train very easily. Kind of curious, what are the things in AI that you think are the most exciting for the next year or two? And is there anything that you feel like is actually overhyped lately when it comes to the the AI conversation.
1: I'll tell you, I don't believe in AI fully because the the day Netflix and plumbing what movie I want and you write 100% of the time, I'll it. And that will be the hell. But but, uh, I think, joking aside, I think the reasons for cutting a skepticism of AI, not necessarily the skepticism of AI itself, but somewhere's the back end of what AI relies on, which is the data itself. If the data is clean and pristine without error, without inaccuracies, without integrity issues, without missing data, then I think AI will function much better. I don't think anybody would dispute that part of it. And until we get there with data, I think we're going to still see fallouts from AI in healthcare. And there are lots of reasons, but healthcare data is, I'm going to steal a quote from somebody that I heard speak one time. And that is that data in healthcare is like a book that you're reading that in multiple languages. Sometimes left to right, sometimes right to left, upside down in some pages, right side up in others, some pieces torn, some pieces not torn, and in all random order, right? And that's really a lot of the case without your data on the back end until you clean it up. And the cleanup takes a lot of time and effort. And that process is not perfect either. And so there's a lot of steps to get to for AI to be uh, fully valid and useful. Uh, it's not to say it's not useful now. But to be fully automated and have no human in the middle, I think we're a little ways off for those data. But I'll say that the issue with data is more in the data capture side. Until we actually really fully build healthcare systems that truly understand user interface and human centered design in the way we use them, we won't get to great data capture. Because as long as I have to click 10 times to do one thing, or the drop down menu is active, or whatever it may be. Until we get to a point where those things are done well, we won't have great data capture. And those are some of the limitations. If you look at Google, for example, and you look at anything like you enter online for Google, the data capture makes pristine sense, like who you are, where you are. They'd really take unstructured data and convert the structured data in some magical way. They give you great output. I mean, it can predict my email long before part existed. And that's just awesome that they can do that. And then it's also easy to use. Like, if you have one Gmail address, that account and login gives you access to not only email, but also the search and map, the photos, the drive, the workspace, the YouTube, on and on and on, right? It's one clean, pristine logon that goes to the entire ecosystem and it's very easy. You don't have that user experience in healthcare for the same level. And you have to name Google, I can name Amazon, I can name Apple, you can name it, right? I, I don't need to isolate anyone personally, but that an experience of consumer experience for those Silicon Valley products far exceeds the majority of the healthcare products that we have. And it's not just a product itself, like Epic practically did a really good job with the EMR. I don't put the blame on Epic. I really put it on the way we regulate out there and all the different things that go into it. If you have an MA at a outpatient clinic that's freestanding standing versus a hospital clinic that's at uh, versus a clinic that's within the four walk of the hospital, the rules are completely different. Mm-hmm. And so then that means that your technical build is very different. And you're going to have following so many of those new problems that build becomes so complex that uh, it becomes commercial for the user. Until we get to a really clean way of doing out there in terms of regulations and all the processes and operations, we're going to have these limitations in the user interface. Mm-hmm. So it's not a limitation of the product and the company as much as mm-hmm. it is our ways of using the products and our input
0: into the design of the system itself which needs a lot of work yeah makes sense so, so malika you had a great analogy about the ai and using the gps you're going to make the executive decision to turn left as opposed to right even though data might tell you otherwise you've shared your thoughts on this topic in the past but i wanted to dig a little bit deeper around ai and critical thinking so really it's a a function of ai combined with critical thinking that gives you that great result that you're after in in, in the long run some clinical leader that we've talked with in the past have talked about their concerns around automation complacency the idea that you know we might trust ai so much that we're not even looking into the the various inputs that brought us to the output which could obviously lead to harm how have you thought about co- automation complacency and what are you doing to maybe circumvent some of the concerns with positions
1: yeah that's a great question I think I, I used this example another uh, podcast though is that uh when I'm at nest at home I' have a Nest uh, thermometer and I get into this automation places the temperature side and so I go to town and my wife me, me's like why the hell is it cold? why is it so hot and I'm like oh shoot sorry I guess actually it's the purpose the is better um and and that happens those right now a temperature setting that's inaccurate really not much damage to there, right? But you do that out there, you can really possibly, uh, no doubt. So you have to have guardrails around what you're doing. You have to put in a structure that forces people to not be complacent because the inherent human quality is that we become complacent because it allows our brains to work on autopilot so we can focus on things that require brain power higher, right? And just whether we believe or not, we share this the feature of our brain's function. And the idea is that if we are in a place where there's danger and safe, we're not going to focus on what's safe because we know that's safe but we don't need to worry about it. We're going to focus our brain and on things that change because that change could potentially be dangerous to us. Yeah. And so our brains and eyes and entire senses are geared towards detecting change. And so once you get into a rhythm, it is humanly impossible to not be complacent about something. But we do this when we're driving, right? If we're driving the same route from work to Huntington, and you've done it a thousand times, you feel like you can do it in your sleep and you stop focusing on the road. Well, that one day is on the onset and you're like, mm, don't get in my lane. And you're like, oh, shoot, I should pay attention, right? That change prompted us to jar us out of our complacency because that horn. So, oh, there's something dangerous that we should pay attention to. But outside of that horn, we'd be on a all right. That's done by design because you need energy conservation. If your brain is fully attentive to everything in the environment, you would wear yourself out in like one hour of being awake. There's just no way that you don't want do that. So that's the way the brain functions is to turn things into autopilot, like less energy use, so that you can focus on other things that do require attention and focus. So it's humanly imp- impossible to do the things that don't become complacent if things are working well. So what do you do? Then you, and and I know that's part of my brain your background and stuff coming into this, but that's where the clinical background sort of influences my other parts of what I do. But I think the other part of this then is how do you build a structure so that complacency doesn't become dangerous? You have alerts, you have things. And so every situation is different, but you have to build in structurally into the technical build to <laughs> allow complacency to not happen at the most critical junctures. And that's the only way to ensure safety. If you rely on human thought set in education and in a workflow, you will fail and you will have an event. Not because the person doesn't care, not because they are not focused, not because they are not caring, but it is the way the human brain or mind is structured that when things are automatically working well, we take our focus off of it so we can put our focus on other things. So that requires us to build things from a digital perspective that overcomes that inherent limitation
2: that we have. That makes makes some sense. sense. I mean, I I think to your point, using your example of the GPS and the, or not GPS, right? Let's say, um, autonomous vehicles for driving, you know, if it does get to the point where it's incredibly safe, the error rate is very, very low. You can tolerate a lot of human complacency. You know, you don't need to be watching the wheel the whole time that the autonomous, you know, software is driving. But I think to your point for, for clinical medicine. You still have to identify what are those critical junctures where like you have to have your hands on the wheel it sounds like that makes a lot of sense one of the things people worry about with ai is how do you actually leverage it in clinical care without losing the human aspect of it so maybe a good example would be more and more folks are trying generative ai to help draft responses to to patient messages through something like my chart and some people say well you can use prompts to send more you know, empathetic, you know, messages, for example. I'm kind of curious, like what are things you think we can do or, or we should keep in mind to make sure that we don't lose empathy when we're using AI in, in clinical care or communication?
0: Yeah,
1: great question. And it's a real struggle. I don't have a fantastic answer for this, but I'll tell you, I'll describe the, the situation at least so people understand is, so just ask the UGM. Epic you presented on stage, the CEO of Microsoft. So Ryan is is a uh, very high benefit. Um yeah. and they discussed the use of Microsoft's new product the copilot and other things to put that and fuse that into Epic and other products to automate some things. And just for awareness, GPT is on of open AI and that company is bought by Microsoft. So now it's all part of one company with Microsoft. And the thought is ChatGPT can really do human like functions such as respond, et cetera. Why don't we just put that patient portal message with my card into that when a chat did begins begin to the automated response? And that sounds great in theory, but it's not fully varied up for a couple of reasons. One is if a patient is asking a very simple question, like what type of the clinic open? That's easy, right? That, that's a very automated thing that doesn't change. You can just have an automated response and chat and say, Hey, here's all the clinic times that need to require that automated response, no big deal." that's fine. Or if it says, Hey, you know, I need to resell my description. Oh, that's okay. That's so, you know, you can automate that to some degree, check these things to, Hey, we got it. We we're on top of it. Send a message to someone at the clinic that get of it and boom, even that can be automated. Right. But what if it's a, Hey, Dr. Jones, I, I started the medication given yesterday. I'm having some side effects. I don't know, like the medication or other things, right? That's a really complex question. It requires, not just injection of knowledge from the outside that ChatGPT does so well, but also of the patient's uh, chart, right? And so looking at the chart and saying what medication are they on, what other things are they on, what's going on in their life, what are they allergic to? Do? I think there's a lot of things that you think about, and all of that complex, not just data entry and information, but then converting that information to uh, analytical thinking, insight, and knowledge that then converts back to what response they get I don't think any product is out there that can do that well. And there's a real danger if you give a quick answer or, or something else, right? Like, and I'm not thinking Chattopie, but let's say any, any product, bar, Chattopie, whatever you name it, right? Any of these products in that same category, if you give a, a question, you know, could this be causing this? Well, what the data they can ingest that's out there on the internet, could be, you have medications, you have side effects, you have patient characteristics even. But all of that combined may not give you the right answer without the ability to analyze the patient's whole profile with the volume and, and that's where the danger inherent limitations are. That's not to say that ChatGPT can't be great support, right? Maybe you type a couple words that give a given prompt, but then that chat GPT will populate the rest of the message. And so you've reduced the time of answering the message from, say, three minutes to 30 seconds, right? But you've got a human supervising that process. They're just not physically typing something out. That is certainly a, a, a use case that can be done very soon. And so there's a lot of different ways to think about technology to use technology. And we just have to be very careful that we put people up front and rather than think about consequences on what can happen and really be careful about how we use them. It's not to say, again, that we can't get there in a year or two years, whatever the it may be. But today, if you ask me, can we just turn on chat GPT and have that answer my basket messages and Epic, I wouldn't automate that process just because there's so much unknown in that process now can i turn on chat gpt to uh, give a response to basic straight-up information like clinic hours or you know does dr gentleman's have an appointment schedule available whatever right yeah those things i think that no, there's less one there's less danger in that first of all and second those are typically more pure information questions not analytical thinking type questions and so i think those are easy
0: Malik, I've heard on another podcast, you were talking about books that you were into around leadership and culture. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned around leadership and culture that you try to impart most to your teams? Oh, man. I've had to learn a lot from I started from, my, from an remedial
1: standpoint. <laughs> at the end of the day, what I've learned from a lot of sources, you know, leadership is really like getting what the people are at. The constant is, of leadership, which really came scripture from so I'm, I'm like back in the background, i remember reading that a in my Sunday school Gita class and they're talking about it at that time when I was like, "How you know, i was so like, oh, whatever, you know, I don't care. I just want to go play basketball. <laughs> but, um, I'm like, remembering all that stuff. It comes back to you So I think there's a lot of cool stuff in, in a lot of the historical stuff that we have. And again, any religion, anywhere, probably have similar, similar items. For me, it was from my background. But I think leadership. To me, that really just means care about the people around you. Whether they're going through something, ask them. When someone on the team's out for a while, well, my first question is like, "What's wrong with them?" In a demeaning manner, my question is, "Hey, what's going on? Like, are they having some something going on at home? Is are they struggling? Something? Are they, you know, let's let's figure out. Like, my <laughs> my response is to be curious and say, "Hey, what's going on? Let's let me find out more," and then getting into other things from there and most of the time people do have things going on with them and there is something to be concerned about then help them out right be part of the team like help them out but you are learning learn that the personal that's going on if you just pick them at the an employee and say you're a worker and i need to produce work product or you don't produce work product then i'm going to be upset that's not the right place to be yeah. i don't know that's not a place i want to be in and i don't want any on my team to feel that way i want them to feel open and honest and and come forward, hey, I'm struggling with it. Can I get no, up? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing was, was about habits is I'm reading this book. There's a gift to, to us from a friend. The book is called Comic Habits. and mm-hmm. You guys probably heard about it. It's, it's the New York Times bestseller, but it's amazing. And it's, it's a concept that makes so much sense, but none of us really have the patience to actually do it, which is, let me focus on 1% change today. And let me focus on 1% teams tomorrow. Forget this dramatic, you know, Losing weight in thirty days, or you know, gaining twenty pounds the muscle in in two weeks, whatever, right? Like we see all that, or learning how to play violin in a month, right? Like we get all these things, and all our products like the kid, like you'll learn to speak this language fluently in thirty days. Well, there's like you know it, and but I think if you make one percent improvement every day, the exponential improvement, and and we talk about compound interest, but really compound interest with habits. And I'm reading that with my kids right now in the evenings, and. It's amazing. It's that I feel like I'm reading it for them. I feel like I'm reading it for me, really. <laughs> because I'm learning way more than I think they are. And just amazing some of the changes that that happen with incremental change on a daily basis. A change that you may not even notice on that day, but leads to dramatic change. I mean, the story in there about the the British Cyclone. I'm sure you haven't heard of that, that story, right? I don't recall they, it. Well, so they got a new a new performance director in the early 2000s. and up to that point, Great Britain had not won anything cycling-wise for over 110 years. To the point that some of the major leading bicycle manufacturers would not sell bicycles to the British team because they were performing so badly. and They don't want to be associated with that. Team. And it's just amazing to that level. But then they had a performance record that only focused on 1% change dairy. So they focused on things that, you know, you're like, why would they focus on them? But they had a surgeon come in to show the team how to watch means. Why? Why would you need the surgeon to teach you how to wash hands? Like, well, if you wash your hands properly, there's less chance of you getting sick for passing germs. Well, it makes sense. So if you're, you have fewer sick days and you're an athlete, that's huge, right? Mm-hmm. They painted the wall white. Why? So they can pick up and speck the dust much quicker so that people don't get bad stuff in the air and they'll get sick. They talk about making the seat more comfortable so that they can ride for longer periods of time they fit, looked at making the, the clothes that they wore while biking more aerodynamic yeah. and, and sleeker and lighter weight, right? If it's lighter weight, less energy, just wearing the, the clothes that you have. So things like that. And then also on a daily basis, they did a bunch of other things. And in the next 10 years, 2017, they won like 70% of all the medals during yeah. that time in the world yeah. for a cycling event. And they won in a six-year period, they won five out of six for the front events. And so... Just amazing that they made one percent change, and you didn't see the impact of that right away. You saw it took a few years, but then for the next ten years, they dominated the sport like no other in the world, right? Probably close the Patriots. I throw that one in there. The the Patriots of the twenty years, right? Six Super Bowls, nine nine appearances in Super Bowl. So like those are dominant things that happen with one percent change daily, and. Again, it's hard to fathom that because on a daily basis, you'd like, oh, I didn't really do anything. But if you can stay disciplined and focus on 1% change, then that will drive so much change. And again, it's things that honestly that we probably know, but we're getting the stories about it. I think inspired you to do that on a regular basis. I've been trying to focus on that. I'll tell you for myself, My today my 1% was to drink eight glasses of water. That's mm-hmm. it. There's that, that was the only thing I wanted to really achieve on 1% improvement. I haven't gotten there yet, 75% of the way there, (laughs) but but, but, I think it's, but those things add up. And if you accumulate those things, I think they make a dramatic change uh, on on certain things and and we can apply that to
0: anything. No, I love it. So Malik, just being mindful of your time, we're going to flip over to the fast five lightning round, basically just five rapid fire questions. The, The first one you may have already answered, but we're curious, what's your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Well, right now, I think there's a lot of books I've loved. There's, there's one that I read as a, as a kid,
1: which is Profile and Courage by JFK, which is courageous action by people and Congress and other people all over the history of time. It's amazing! It was a good, Prize-winning book, but really fantastic book and really by uh, courage. I Atomic uh, Habits is awesome. I love right. it. I'm uh, reading a lot. It's really helpful. So that's it for right now. A big boost to you.
0: Love it. Yeah. Question two: Who is a person, either dead or alive, you'd love to meet? Oh wow, better a lot. Oh, it's a tough one. Um, you no,
1: know, I'll tell you. I guess I could pick from many, but I guess in the lightning round, my son actually last year did a history day project. It was frontiers in history. People had really done something completely new in history that changed how things were done. And he actually talked about the nonviolent movement, non nonviolent yeah. resistance. And he talked about Mahatma Gandhi and his life and how that contributed to that. So would be awesome to
0: meet them, meet him, and meet
1: him. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I love that. Question three is a bit different. Would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Can't have all three, huh? Yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> should take the third one. Would you? Yeah. That yeah. Mind reading, I love it. Question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane?
1: Wow. Um, I would say... If you really look at the incentives of healthcare and how that drug behavior, that would be insane to most people. hmm
0: Yeah, I agree with that one. But last question that we have, Malik, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, when would it be and why? Even before, like, my lifetime? Anytime. Oh, wow. As Einstein
1: was coming up with the theory of relativity it would be kind of fun day, so do be back. that. I was gonna say, go back and see the first man on the road, the problem, because this is the nerd in me. But back then, there's no good TV. You couldn't really get like a yeah. TV. Fan. So, well, that's why. I did that. But otherwise, I was a big man on the moon. Like if I could have like
0: today's photography of that step, mm. I would take that. But if not, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's awesome. Well, thank you, Malik. That's a wrap for this episode of the Digital Patient, hosted by CMOS MD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamusMD. And if you like the podcast, and you want to learn more. Visit www.cinos.mb. Uh Malik, Dr. Pro, again, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our audience today. It was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me.